All right. Hey, good to see you all again. It's been a couple years, I think, um, but happy to be out as a part of this series and yeah, thrilled to cover one of my favorite texts of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, or uh, as it's called in the Hebrew, Bereshit. It's the very first word uh, of the book. And as per the other books of Torah, uh, Torah meaning instruction or law, uh, the five books of Moses, as you often call them, uh, in Hebrew tradition, they get called by one of the first words that occurs in the text. And so in the case of, of the book of Genesis, as we call it, uh, it happens to be the very first word. And yet, for us in English, that one word in Hebrew translates into three, in the beginning. And so it says it all. In the beginning, uh, a great way to designate this book. Genesis, the name that, by which we call it, comes to us by way of Septuagint. The Septuagint is this uh, ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, a translation that began in the early 3rd uh, century B.C. in Alexandria, Egypt. And uh, by designations from that translation, it was called Genesis. So we haven't changed it all that much in English. And Genesis in Greek means begetting or birthing or origin. You could even say origin, source. Uh, so even that title seems to fit what I think many of you in this audience know about the nature of this book. It is a book of origins, isn't it? Uh, now, another way to look at the entirety of the book of Genesis is to frame it according to this oft-repeated word that comes up in very key intervals in the text. And it, this is this word toledot in Hebrew. Toledot means generations. Uh, even itself, it can mean birthings, you know. Uh, so the idea, thanks, uh, the idea of the Toledot is that whenever you encounter a new Toledot formula, uh, sometimes it's the fuller phrase, El Toledot in Hebrew, these are the generations of dot, 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 uh, that that marks a new milestone in the text. And a way that I could encourage you all to think about this is to think of these Toledot sections as going from uh, the most cosmic and large proportions uh, down by, by gradations to ever smaller points of view. And so the very first example uh, where you encounter one of these Toledot occurrences is chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. You can, you can see for yourselves in the text, and I encourage you to follow along. Uh, another such occurrence, marking yet an, another section. Obviously, the, the generations of the heavens and the earth is, in that context, talking about how the heavens and the earth came to be by the mighty works of God. Uh, cosmic in scale, as large as we can think of, especially as large as an ancient mind can think of. Uh, then you have the book of the generations of Adam. This is chapter 5, verse 1 marking another new section. And conveniently in English tradition and in our Christian Bibles, that is a new chapter anyway, and so no problem. Uh, and you can see that this has narrowed the scope somewhat. We're no longer on that large plane of heavens and earth cosmic scale, uh, and yet we're still at a large scale because we are talking about Adam, the man whose name means humanity, and these generations that will come forth from him. So we are still talking about a large scope of interest here in the text. Uh, the next one, these are the generations of Noah. This is chapter 6, verse 9. Another very significant moment in the text uh, because Noah, will be, together with his family, will be that survivor of the flood and will be the new Adam, you might say, of this new creation that follows the flood. Uh, so, as you see, this is the pattern uh, with these generations. They get smaller and smaller, and yet still significant figures, most especially by the time that you get to uh, the, the later names in the, the book of Genesis, when you're following this family of Abraham. And now, it takes on a much more specialized interest, particularly to the people who are descended from Abraham. Uh, and so that's ultimately where the book is, is getting us, through these series of sections, uh, either 10 or 11, depending on how some are counting, uh, of these Toledot, these generations of so-and-so. Uh, what it's ultimately addressing is, where did these things that we see around us come from? Where do we fit in the larger picture of God and God's creation? And yet... A key question 
to pose to the question itself, where do we fit, is who is the we? And so when, when Mike uh, Coghill you know, first uh, addressed me about the, the possibility of doing something on Genesis for your series and, and told me our theme is the main, the main point of dot, 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 as Mike was saying a moment ago, the, of uh, this or that book of the Bible, I thought, oh, well, great, you know, no problem. Let's summarize Genesis, <laughs> the main theme of Genesis. But uh, if, if pushed to such a, a task, what I would leave you with this evening, if nothing else, as I encourage you to yourselves go and read the book of Genesis. It's a fabulous, epic piece of literature about God, God's creation, God's people is to come at it with this in mind. Yes, it is a book of origins. It's a book of where do we fit in the bigger picture. But again, the question that I would leave you with is who is the we? Far too easy when it's in our hands in a nice modern binding, which can make us forget that at first it was in a scroll, and translated into English, it can be far too easy for us to say, well, the we is we ourselves. You know, we can easily plant the church in the shoes of that original audience and say, yeah, this is how we, the people of faith today in the Christian context, this is our origin story. And don't get me wrong, ultimately, because we share that heritage of faith, and as Paul would say of the Gentile part of the church, at least, that we were grafted on, nevertheless, we can't forget that, as Paul said, we were grafted on. And so before the story became ours, it was the story of ancient Israel. And accordingly, uh, one thing that I would leave with you in this evening's discussion, and, and I'll, I'll try after summing up in just these few short minutes, Genesis, I'd like to leave some time uh, to, to hear your thoughts, your questions as well, uh, and uh, we'll do that, I guess, after uh, the taping. That or I'll just repeat your questions out loud. So I want to leave you with that idea uh, that this is not first a message that was delivered to us, but to these ancients, and more specifically, not just any ancients, but the ancient people of Israel. And so it spoke in a language that was their own language, Hebrew. And I don't just mean that in terms of technicality of language. I also mean it spoke culturally in terms that fit their context and don't necessarily always fit the modern context. And so we want to, uh, as good students of the word, to try to put ourselves as best we can into those shoes and appreciate something even more from this text, especially when, as I imagine for many of you in this group here, you may have grown up with these stories, beloved, cherished stories with images implanted in our minds uh, from great series of, of Sunday school lesson books, right? We, we have these pictures of Adam and Eve in the garden. We have uh, the pictures of Abraham looking up at the stars. I don't know, if, if you're like me, I have them imprinted in me. And, and I'm thankful to my teachers from youth for that. Uh, but we want to add to that tonight, especially considering that we are an adult uh, group of believers here, and, and dig even deeper into the text. To give you a point of comparison, uh, think back to maybe what you've encountered in your, your middle school, high school education, uh, maybe even college level. Perhaps you read or at least had summarized for you some of the, the, the storyline of Dante's The Inferno. Anybody? You can nod your head if that's somewhat familiar. Now, if I were to ask you, what is Dante's The Inferno about? What comes to mind? Well, the simplest straightforward answer might be, it's Dante, the man's journey through hell. You know, an imaginative telling, to be sure. And he's, he's led through uh, these infernal regions by Virgil, the poet, that great Latin poet. Uh, but really, that would only be half the truth. Yes, of course, Dante goes through hell in this narrative. But it's just as much a narrative having to do with the, the politics and social concerns of Dante's day, and more specifically, in his native Italy things that were going on, upheavals. And this is what Dante was commenting on in a narrative that first smacks us aside the head with the idea, oh, this is about religious themes. Yes, it is, but it's also about politics. It's also about social concerns and social reforms that are needed. 
Likewise, I might say the same thing about Paradise Lost, right? A, a book some of you, again, may be familiar with, uh, written in the, the 17th century by, by Milton. And again, what would, what would you say that's about? It's about Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden, but it's a lot of backstory to that, right? And it's about Satan and his, his uh, angels falling from the presence of God and forming their own counter kingdom, all of that. And you'd be right on one hand, and yet there too, that narrative has a lot to do with the politics of the day that were happening in Milton's own native England and the civil war that broke out in that century. So what I would tell you about the book of Genesis is yes, it is true that the stories that, that you've taken away about origins of all things, yes, that's there. The origins of various peoples of the earth and then coming down to this, this family that would become the nation of Israel, yes, that's there. But there are also sometimes some subtler politics of the day that are being addressed uh, in, in these writings. Now, uh, as Mike mentioned just moments ago, uh, and I just found out recently, we're not going to break up this lesson tonight into the two sections, which is unfortunate because it would be perfect for Genesis. Genesis has two major literary units that you can break it down into. Uh, and so these are the first one, the primeval narratives, they get called primeval, meaning the first epic, the first era uh, of, of conceivable time in the beginning, right? Uh, and the things that follow closely on the heels of that. What happens with the advent of, of humanity and the falling away, the distancing from God, early conflicts. Uh, that's the primeval narrative. Then the next major and the final section of Genesis is the patriarchal narratives. As per the name, it follows the patriarchs, these great forefathers of the faith. And chiefly, we remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it is those three and their family as it starts to grow. Not yet a nation by the end of Genesis, and yet we see that trend, that this small family is multiplying by the grace of God. And so that's the, the major structure of Genesis, at least two different ways to think of it. In the Hebrew text, the generations that separate major units, but in a much simpler way, I would suggest uh, chapters 1 through 11, primeval narrative, first epic of, of uh, world history, and then the patriarchal narratives, chapters 12 through the end, through 50. All right, so let's get into the primeval narrative. And again, because I want to leave time at the end here uh, for, for questions, comments, uh, dialogue, uh, please do write down anything that comes to mind as I'm going through this, because I want to hear your thoughts. By the way, what time am I looking at again for the close? 720 uh, Excellent. Okay, thank you. All right, so the primeval narrative begins with creation, right? In the beginning. Uh, interestingly enough, in the beginning, in, in Hebrew uh, scholarship, a number of us uh, see good reason to read this instead as in the beginning of God's creating of the heavens and the earth, while the earth was still unformed and unfilled, darkness over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God hovering over the waters, that God said, let there be light. Notice, if you're following along in your English translations, that's just a slight difference from the majority translations out there, uh, many of which say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But that slight difference amounts to where does God's first creative act register in the text? So, if you read it as, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then you would say, well, the, the first act of God, the first verb uh, in, in the context would be God creating heavens and the earth. And yet, if, you, if you're a careful reader of chapter 1, you will notice that, technically speaking, it's later on that God creates heavens and names them as such. That's day two. And it's only on day three that he really creates earth. And so one reason that a number in scholarship say that the first creative act of God is really when he says, let there be light, 
is because we see in a careful reading of that text that the creation of heavens and earth come later. And so you might say that that, that very first verse is like a title to the whole. The only reason that we can't always recognize it as such is that it's immersed in the text. But keep in mind that ancient writings often did not have the sort of spacing and Times New Roman font and so forth that we have in our, our modern publications. And so uh, sometimes it was just understood naturally by an audience where a title section would fall and that it was not quite congruent with the rest of the section. Furthermore, uh, another thing that right off the bat, which is such a seemingly simple narrative, strikes us as, I think, perhaps new, is that what you have at the beginning of Genesis, chapters 1 into chapter 2, are not one single creation account, but they're actually two different narratives, two different ways of talking about how God created now, how, how do scholars in the field reach such a conclusion? And uh, how can we be assured if there's anything to that or not? Well, part of it comes from when you look at chapter 2, verse 4. So chapter 2, verse 3, concludes the first uh, creation narrative, I'm telling you. Uh, and this is when God has blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and it brings everything to a nice conclusion after that seven days, that week of creation, as we call it. And then verse 4, these are the generations. Remember I told you a moment ago, whenever you see generations, that begins a new major narrative unit in the Hebrew text. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth, or as many of your translations might say, this is the account, perhaps, right? The account. Technically, though, it's the same word that's used elsewhere and translated generations. Um, but if you like, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day Yahweh God, or the Lord God, created earth and heaven. Now, one reason that we might easily skip over this is because uh, if you're already trained, if you're already thinking, well, I've heard about creation and it's mentioning this is the account, then we get the impression, oh, is this capping off what we just read? That would make logical sense, right? Nothing wrong with that kind of an idea. And yet, it's not this alone that, that suggests to, to those who, who study this diligently that this is a new unit of text, a new narrative. It's also the details as chapter 2 plays out. If you're paying close attention, there are elements that are quite different in the telling of this story. Now, let me talk about this as best I can, with two, the two parallel narratives side by side. And I hope you'll, you'll enjoy with me just the beauty of the composition here of how each of these is put together. So, have you ever thought about the memorizing of the days of creation? How many of you, by the way, had to do that when you were a kid in Sunday school? Memorizing the days of creation. Not as many as I thought. Or that or, or a little shy. That's okay, too. But, for those of you who had... Maybe a little intimidating, right? Oh, goodness, what comes after the waters and above and below? Well, I would tell you that there's a very natural way. Maybe some of you already know this. We have the first three days where God creates on day one light. And then technically, if you read carefully, you notice he creates darkness as well. And he names these these new entities, lights, dark. He names the light what? Day. And he names the darkness night. So just as much as he creates light and darkness, you might just as well say he creates really day and night or the day sky and the night sky. And it's convenient because that actually shows the passing of time onto the next day, right? There was evening, there was morning. Day two, we are told that God separated the waters. Let there be an expanse, as many of your translations may have, or firmament. Technically, the term in Hebrew there, rakia, means a hammered-out substance. So, more or less, it's the idea of a dome. Now, keep in mind, this is for an ancient audience. Right? The major point here is not the science of it all, but the ethics of it all. Who is doing the creating? And why is he doing the creating? So, he creates out of good intent, goodwill, 
this firmament, this expanse to separate waters above from waters below. Now, many of us, when we hear waters above, we might be inclined, once again, because of our our modern stance, to say, oh, we're probably thinking here about clouds up there, right? Of all their varieties. But not the ancients. The ancients, and we can tell this from a number of other pieces of ancient literature about the creation of all things, many of them, especially from the ancient or eastern world, had this in common, that they thought of our little bubble of existence here on the planet Earth as being quite literally a bubble with a dome above us that keeps out these waters of the cosmic ocean from crashing down on us and snuffing us out. And so this is what's meant when the text says that this expanse separates the waters above from the waters below. All right. Already, we are into territory that is not the same as what we encounter in our our modern world. But again, that's okay. This is not first written for us. It's written in the language that's most pertinent and most useful uh, to this ancient audience. And it still teaches them the same cores of, of, of faith as are handed down to us. So that's day two. Day three, God creates the earth. As the text says, let the waters pool together, right? And out of this process, dry land comes up, earth comes up. Now notice, first three days, God creates the day sky, the night sky, day one. Day two, God creates the upper waters, and he names them heaven or sky, For the ancients, by the way, certainly in Hebrew, there is no distinction in terminology, sky, heaven. Uh, And day three, God creates land. Are you noticing some commonality here? I'm seeing a lot of stage setting, but no actors yet, right? Aside from God. So, the first three days, a nice easy way to remember it, if you didn't already know this, this mnemonic device, is God creates the environments. Day sky, night sky, sky altogether, right? And seas, and then land. Then the next three days are perfectly opposite the environments. So day four, which would be opposite day one, God is going to create those beings that will inhabit the day sky and the night sky. So day four, if, as you follow along, that's the day where God creates the greater light and the lesser light sun and moon, and the stars. And the text says he he creates them to to rule or govern. Now, this is an interesting point here, because yet again, it it requires an imagination that is, is dwelling for a moment, at least, in the ancient mindset. These days, we can maybe all too flippantly look at the sun and with where we are currently in terms of astrophysics, say so dismissively, well, that's a giant ball of very hot gas, right? And yet, honestly, don't we lose something by dismissing it so flippantly? I mean, this is a, a magnificent thing that happens, that, that this ball of heat that could snuff us out if we were any closer uh, does what it does and brings forth life on, on this planet that sustains life on this planet as a servant of God. And keep in mind also that for the ancients, the most natural conclusion, if if you didn't have our current astrophysics, but you look out at the horizon and you see the glowing orb rise, and you see it work its course across the sky, if something moves, it seems to have life, doesn't it? That's the conclusion of the ancients that the sun is a living thing. So to the moon. The moon moves, and not only does the moon move like the sun from our perspective, but it also goes through shifts, which can scare a number of ancient peoples. (laughs) But notice what's really odd about this text. It's not that it talks about these entities as if they had some sort of mental capacity to actually rule. That's what the text says. But furthermore, that... They're not named. Why wouldn't you go ahead and say the sun, the moon? They had those words, by the way, in Hebrew, and (laughs) they occur all over the place in the Hebrew Bible. One reason I would suggest to you, and yet again, it has to do with that original audience, not ourselves in the modern world, 
It's the fact that this text is meant, among other things, to be a political statement and a religious statement against the other theologies out there of the day. Theologies that suggested that that bright, brilliant, glorious thing in the sky, as, as beautiful as it is, is not a god, as many of the Israelites' neighbors believed, but is created by the true God. And so, as subtle as it is, and such a passing statement, there's a lot of meaning behind it. That's the author saying, no, that's not God. And that was a needful message in his day. So to the moon, not to deify that object, but to put it in its appropriate place. Now again, notice, he doesn't say it's not a living thing. The author still treats it as a living entity. But the glory is given ultimately to God for having made that. It's fabulous. All right, so day four, the making of those entities, those beings who will inhabit the realms of day and night. Remember day two? Day two is that separating of the waters, so you get sky and you get seas. Well, what do you get on day five across the board from that? You get sky creatures and sea creatures. Makes sense, right? So that's the pattern of the arrangement of these three and three days to fit into the six days of God creating in Genesis chapter one. Uh, And then, of course, the crowning achievement, we might say, in chapter one, Uh, On day six, the land animals culminating with God's first deliberative statement in chapter one. Let us make mankind, humankind, in our image, according to our likeness. It's lovely. I mean, it still should give us shivers to this day and and fill us with wonder. It's somewhat of an unfortunate thing that that we, we have so many books about such a fine book. <laughs> because sometimes we can get lost in, in all of our uh, um, splitting of the details, trying to figure out exactly what's meant, rather than sometimes just living in the wonderful mystery of the text, in the bareness of what it says. Let us make mankind in our image. What's meant by image? To what extent is that to be carried out? I don't know that we have to f- figure that out. I like to live in the mystery myself. And I think the, the writer did too. But whatever the case, that's, that's the makeup of that first account of creation. And then it's topped off. After that, that great achievement of creating mankind in God's image and God looking back and, and saying it is very good. Tov ma'od in Hebrew. Especially good. Notice there's no mention of evil coming into the world at this point. It's all made of good intent And unlike many mythologies uh, uh, of the people surrounding Israel at the time, there is no warfare leading to creation. That's the typical uh, way that it was often spelled out in the ancient world. This god fights this god or titan, slays it, and from its body makes the creation. For example, the Babylonians. They, They believed in their epic of creation called the Enuma Elish. It was read yearly at the New Year's festival that their god, Marduk, the chief god of of the Babylonian pantheon, had slain his great-great-grandmother. I I lose track. But his grandmother, Tiamat, Tiamat basically means deep, abyss. It's it's linguistically connected to the word to home in the Hebrew text of chapter 1. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And yet, deep is not understood as a god here. But in the Babylonian epic, it was. And so Marduk slew this this chaotic serpent of waters, and from her body made the heavens and the earth, and from her, her accomplice, he made humankind, rather as a punishment, rather than a blessing. It's a grim way to look at life. And, and how would that... How would that color your daily experience if that's what you thought the origins of things were? You thought we were here really just because some god needed to be punished, and really we were made also just to be slaves of the gods. It wouldn't give you a very rosy picture of things, and it certainly wouldn't give you a high esteem for human value. Not like Genesis 1 does. That's the beauty of this text. But again, it's a text that's commenting on other texts that were around in its day. And we can miss out on that. But I hope what you're seeing there is this beauty of it. And then again, like I said, there's a Sabbath rest at the end. Uh, God looks back 
and he gets to rest, and because he gets to rest, all creation rests. Now, we know from plenty of other scriptures, God needs no rest. Right? The Lord does not slumber. But what does that rest say? Well, perhaps among other things, it's a way of saying our life here on earth is not about the rat race. I think that's still, don't you, a very needful message? Far too many of us on, on this planet strive and strive and strive toward an end that we've never really scrutinized enough. Make more money. Why? So that you can live longer. Okay, I'm living longer. <laughs> but am I living? All right. Do we pause to, to cherish what God has given us? To say what is really the meaning of life? Money and, and these other things that we sweat for, the bread from the ground and so forth... It's to keep life going, but it doesn't add to quality of life necessarily. That's one thing we can take away as moderns from the Sabbath lesson, uh, a lesson that unfortunately is, is all too lost on many Christian communities. Uh, now, for many modern Jewish communities, they still practice Sabbath. And I think if you were to ask um, uh, any number of Jews, they would give you that sort of same response. Sabbath reminds me of what I'm about that I am made in the nature of God, I'm made in the image of God, and that I get to partake in that rest. It's beautiful. Another thing that's not mentioned specifically by this text is that to the ancient mind, a God resting would signify a temple, even if a temple's not mentioned. So, like I mentioned with that Babylonian uh, epic of creation, Marduk, after he had slain the beast and made creation, he rested in this magnificent temple that was made for him. Temple, by the way, in the ancient mindset, and Israel is no exception, temple was the focal point. It was considered the navel of the world, the middle of everything. So, of course, wherever you lived, that's the middle of the earth, right? But, but the temple was a microcosm. It was a small representation of the larger concept of the cosmos. So if the temple is right and ordered, you have a peace in your heart. So as to say, God is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him, as the prophet said, right? So, uh, that's the idea here. If we can be assured God is in his holy temple, he is at rest, that radiates outward to all of his creatures, and they too can rest in good conscience. That's the first creation account. Creation account two, notice what's different. First creation account, God creates by word of mouth, right? as many of us like to call it, the, the divine fiat from the Latin translation of let it be, let there be light, and so forth. So by divine fiat, let there be, let there be, and it happens by God speaking it so. The second creation account, I want to go here on your memory, or just looking at the page in front of you. What is the mode of creation that you seem to see there? Chapter 2, verses 4 and following. Yeah, <clears throat> hands aren't specifically mentioned, but you definitely get the idea, you get a picture in your mind, don't you, of God with hands. Now, if that seems ridiculous to you, it, it should be no more ridiculous than the idea of God using a throat vehicle to speak things into being, right? All of these, by the way, we must acknowledge, these are metaphors. These are human language, as limited as it is, trying our best to commune with God and to speak of God, God things, divine things. So, let it be limited, but also, I hope in its limited nature, you see past it to how beautiful this, this sentiment is. God creating, as if with hands, molding man. In fact, the very term in Hebrew, yatsar, he molded the man, is the very term used for what a potter would do. That's why many would naturally go in their minds to that idea, a potter molding out of clay. And even says, out of, out of the clay, out of the ground, right? Adama. Here's another thing that we can easily miss, um, uh, if not for the distance between us and these Hebrew writers in time, then as a matter of language difference. There are some, you might say, puns in the text here. God takes out of the Adama, ground, clay, dirt, and from it he forms Adam. Adama becomes Adam. Little joke, you might say. Or if not a joke, at least something very poetic, beautiful. Um, Adam, by the way, you know, we, from that point on, we think of it as, oh, Adam, man, that first man's name. And yet, if, if this Adam were walking amongst us today and going to conferences, 
out in San Francisco, wherever, and he had the name tag, and it were translated, it would say, hello, my name is Humanity. It's a nice name to have for the first human, isn't it? <laughs> humanity. Even that, it, it just makes us wonder, what is meant by that sort of naming? What all is, is filling that space? All right, so we see God forming the man. Now, notice in these early verses here, 5 and 6, we are told that there was no vegetation yet that had sprung up from the ground. The reason being that humankind was not yet there to work it, to, to tend it. Now, think back carefully. First creation account. When was vegetation? We're told that vegetation came out on that third day together with the earth. Right, back in chapter 1. So here's a different telling. In, in this version of, of creation, we are told vegetation is not there yet. Then God forms the man. And then it's uh, only in uh, verse 8 and verse 9 that we see God plants this garden. And then verse 9, then Yahweh God caused to sprout from the earth every pleasant tree to the appearance and good for food and so forth. There's a slight difference, but it's a significant one, isn't it? All right, now, here's where we have to stop for a moment and think, why the difference at all? Well, what was the major theme or themes of the first creation account? Well, it's that there is a proper place for everything as God intended. God makes the environments, and then he creates the creatures to fill those environments. He doesn't leave them without a home. And so there's a balance there, and there's a poetry, you might say, to the arrangement of that piece, and especially a poetry that culminates in that seventh day, the one that doesn't have a pairing, right? Because the seventh day is Sabbath day, Shabbat. It's the day of rest. So the first narrative is a Sabbath narrative. It's about how these original ancient Israelites uh, who, who read these sort of texts um, could see in their weekly ritual, their weekly, weekly observance toward God, that what they were doing is reflective of what God does, and it's a way of celebrating their relationship with God. Chapter 2 also celebrates God's relationship with mankind, but in a slightly different way. Here, the relationship is celebrated in terms of that intimate language. God molding man. God breathing into his nostrils this breath of life. Fabulous language. And then notice, God deliberates. After he has uh, taken the man, verse 15, and plants him in, in the Garden of Eden... By the way, this also would probably suggest to an ancient mindset a reversal of the typical order of idolatry. The one that served the image of a god often would take the household deity and place it in a little shrine. Think Barbie dream house, but religious. All right? But here, the one who is moving the figure into a place is God himself moving the man. So there may be, even there, a little bit of commentary on other texts of the time and an experience of the time. But then, uh, having given the man uh, the warning, uh, then it says in verse 18, Yahweh God, or the Lord God, said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I shall make for him a helper who corresponds to him. This term corresponds is like one who comes up side beside him to be his equal, to be his partner. Now notice, it's interesting, it does not say it is evil, it is wrong, it is bad, but it is not good. It's not the best situation that this man is alone. And so we move from good to better things. Still, we have no introduction of evil in the narrative. Uh, and then, what's the very next thing that happens in the text? You tell me. Well, he hasn't formed the woman yet, right? Yeah. So he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. The very next thing, and in fact, not all English translations reflect this, but in the Hebrew, it reads in such a way that it should be rendered uh, in verse 19, then the Lord God, or then Yahweh God, formed from the dust or from the ground uh, every wild creature and all the birds of the skies and all that. It's sequential action. That's not reflected in many translations. Maybe because certain translators are trying to align it more with chapter 1. But that's not how the Hebrew is reading. 
So God notices, this is not good. This man needs a partner. Let's try a sheep. Let's try a penguin. Let's <laughs> I'm being somewhat facetious here, but that's how the text plays out if we're being careful readers, right? It's almost, if you, if you have that playful spirit to, to go where the writer wants you to go, to say, it's like it's an experiment. What do you think of this one? This one. This is what we classically remember as Adam and sometimes as Eve in our picture books naming the animals. But notice, Eve is not there. The woman is not there. And that may seem like a small difference, but it's actually a difference that speaks volumes. God leaves these animals before the man. He names them. And yet, what does it say after, after he had seen all of them? There was not found one that was a suitable helper. So, this is like a trial and error process. It's not really about Adam demonstrating authority. I mean, maybe that's partly implied, but it's really about Adam trying to find somebody that really is that suitable partner, that soulmate, you might say. And he, he sees these lovely creatures that God creates, wonderful, but something's missing. And then we have that fabulous passage. It sounds like a dream state. And for ancients, dreams had the possibility of meaning so much. They could be divine communication. So God causes this deep sleep to fall upon the man. He takes from his side and forms the woman. And then, verse 23, then the man said, as I would translate it, this finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. For this reason she shall be called woman, for she was taken from man. It's convenient that in English, woman and man sound so similar. So do they in Hebrew, too. So that's, that's a point. But uh, here you have the celebration of marriage. Here you have that celebration of love. When you find that perfect partner and you say, yes, this is right, and I thank God for this. It's fabulous. But again, for it to be as wondrous as it is, it has to tell the story of creation in a slightly different way. So one thing I want to leave with you, and, and we can talk about this if we have some time at the end. What do we do with texts like that? When perhaps we go to a text like Genesis, it's at the very beginning, and it says in the beginning, and we're saying, okay, tell us exactly how things played out. And we're imagining as those who are still somewhat products of the Enlightenment, products of modernism and, and modern thought, we're saying, well, make it scientific for us, right? Make it sound like the language I want to hear uh, when we talk about how things came to be. And I would suggest to you that, that the author and even more importantly, God, working through the author, would say, no. <laughs> this is not meant to be the telling as you want it to be. This is the way that it's supposed to be. It's, it's poetry in a manner of speaking. Now, not full-out poetry like, say, the Psalms. But still, it has some, some poetic turns to it, some, some beautiful uh, wordplay and so forth that, that suggests this is not just about telling us the, the raw details. It's trying to fill it with a life of its own so as to say, celebrate this. Enjoy the fact that God created all things. Because really, for the ancients, they weren't trying necessarily to figure out precisely how uh, all the created elements came to be uh, and furthermore, they, they really were, were not debating whether the divine, whether God made things. That's, that was hardly on the table for them philosophically. <laughs> that wasn't until much later. That was a foregone conclusion. But really what these texts tell us is that the God that Israel serves, a God without image, is this kind of a God. And the only creatures that he made in his image, that is to say, touching at all upon the divine, are humans. So don't, don't bow to this greater light and this lesser light, which don't even deserve to be named. Don't shudder at Tiamat. Don't worry about these things. Your God created all things with good intent, and therefore their beginning and their end has good purpose behind it. Already, I've used so much time just to talk about those two narratives, and yet... So much is behind those uh, that, that we need to, to readjust our mindset to, to appreciate these days. If I can summarize uh, a little more quickly some of the other elements, and if we have any time, uh, we might uh, uh, talk a little bit. But after the creation, we get into the fall. The fall, however, is what we call it. 
Once again, I would suggest this is not the ancient designation of a text like this, but it's what we've added through later theology and, and church tradition. The word fall never occurs in the text. Interestingly enough, neither does sin. Now, hold on. I'm not saying that what Adam and the woman, who we get to know later as Eve, what they do does not count as sin. Of, of course, it's going against the will of God. It was the poorer choice to be made. <laughs> but it is still interesting that it's not called sin. Sin does not occur until the Cain narrative. When Cain is warned, sin is crouching and ready for him at his door. And there are a number of elements here, too, that we can miss because of their subtlety, but there is a great poetry to be had here. For one thing, this new narrative of the fall begins in the last verse of chapter 24 that says the man and the woman were both naked, and they did not know it, right? Then the very next verse, if, if it were up to me, many of you would probably say that it's a good thing it's not, I would have put the chapter separation one verse prior. I, I would have put it uh, right before the final verse of chapter 2, because that verse, final one of chapter 2, goes right next to the first of chapter 3. The serpent, or the snake, was the craftiest creature, right? Of all that God had made. Now, the word in Hebrew for naked, arom, sounds very much like the word for crafty or shrewd or even wise in the right context, arum. So those words are at play with each other. The man and the woman are naked, arum. The serpent is wise or shrewd, arum. And so you see this, this balance of, of two features. Furthermore, some of the terms that come up in this garden narrative, the tree of life, tree of life, it's a common metaphor in the ancient Near Eastern world. Uh, among those living in Mesopotamia, it was often a symbol for good kingship. So if a king exercised authority rightly, being himself humble before the, the gods, before heaven, uh, and therefore delivering justice as a vicar to the people, then the king himself is like a tree that is fruitful, and he brings life to all those under his shade. That may ring a bell if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 4. Then... Uh, there is the tree of life as it's used in Hebrew scriptures elsewhere, such as Proverbs, uh, where it is one of the synonyms for wisdom. Wisdom is a tree of life. Uh, for example, you can find this in Proverbs 3, verse 18. Now, if you're uh, an ancient Hebrew speaker used to those kind of idioms, when you hear tree of life, your mind is probably already going to go to the stuff of life, wisdom, God giving his energy into this world for good and creative purposes. And so the tree of life is there in the middle of garden and not far from it. Who knows how far? <laughs> we have the knowledge of good and evil. But this itself is a common idiom in the ancient Near Eastern world, at the very least among ancient Israelites. One such example, if you want to check later, is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 16. Before the boy knows the difference between good and evil, or knows to discern between good and evil. It's a coming-of-age kind of term uh, in, in their everyday sort of, of idiom. So, think about everything that's coming together in this narrative. You have a man and a woman who are naked and yet have no knowledge of that. Honestly, what does that sound like to you? Come on, parents. Help me out. <laughs> Innocent, childlike, practically toddlers, right? Because we know our toddlers. We know what they are like. You know, running around naked around the house. They love it. The freedom. We love it as their parents that they, are, they don't have these terrible fears um, uh, overblown about the world, but they feel secure in our home. And so uh, you have a state of this primeval couple where they are like toddlers, essentially. And they have before them two paths of wisdom. Two paths of coming of age and coming into what it is to know and discern rightly. The one, the tree of life, is wisdom as given by God. The other, the way, uh, the, the knowledge of good and evil, well, that's maturing too, but in a less desirable way. The serpent is shrewd. He's crafty. Maybe he's eaten from that tree. It doesn't say. <laughs> but the serpent says, you will eat this and you will become like God or gods, as you might translate it. And in a manner of speaking... He wasn't wrong. 
You read the text carefully, and it says, even coming from the mouth of God, man and woman have become like one of us. So there's an acknowledgement. They have. But it was not in the proper time and the proper way. They grew up on the mean streets, you might say. They grew up in a way that was undesirable and would end up providing a lot more pain than comfort to them. It's a beautiful story, but it's also beautifully tragic. And we continue from there. Noah and the flood. Before we know it, we find that this is where things have played out. It has gotten so bad uh, that mankind is only filled with evil inclinations, it seems always. This is uh, the beginning of chapter 6. Verse 11 of chapter 6 even tells us uh, that they, they have filled the earth with violence. Uh, the term could even be translated criminal violence. And God is grieved in his heart, the text tells us. Now, this is also interesting as a counterpoint to many other ancient stories of the time, which talk about flood as well, a worldwide flood. The difference being that in those other accounts of the flood, gods flooded the earth, not because mankind had chosen such a morally corrupt way and were being so uh, terribly violent, but because they were too noisy. So, you might say that even the flood narrative is, is probably thinking about those flood stories as well and saying, nope, not that way. That's not how our God operates. Our God would be grieved that his children are going in, in a path away from what is good. And he would only consider bringing a flood as a last resort because things are irrevo irrevocably evil. And so this is what happens in the narrative. God brings the flood... You can also think of the flood as an uncreation because the waters that are opened up, we are told, are even in the heavens. The gates, the windows of the heavens are opened up and the gateways of the deep. That's a way of saying that this little bubble of creation has just been subsumed back into the chaotic waters of pre-creation so as to create anew. Following that, we see the first, at least the first uh, voiced covenant in the Hebrew Bible, and that is the covenant between Yahweh God and not just Noah, but all creatures, that he will never again flood the earth in such a way. And he marks it by the sign of the rainbow, which could just as well be translated his bow as in a warrior's bow. It's like laying down the sword and saying, we're done with that chapter. We're done. By that point, you're essentially toward the end of that primeval narrative. We get the table of nations in chapter 10, the sons of Noah spreading out, having families, and populating the earth. Then you get ready for chapters 12 and following, the patriarchs. I've already taken enough time just on the primeval narrative. But perhaps you might say that's the part, if, if you've seen it for yourselves tonight, that... As, as simple as it seems on the surface, has a lot behind it that's pertinent to the time in which it was first written. And yet I hope that you find that an enriching experience to think, wow, the majesty of what's done in, in this great literary work to speak the truths of God to that audience and continuing to do so into today. All right. Are we at time? The kid's going to come in, Mike? Not yet. Okay. So do I have some time for comments, questions? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Don't let me take too much time, please. All right. Any, any thoughts, comments, questions? I'll try to repeat them out loud. Yes, sir. Adam didn't have anything suitable for him, and he created animals right there after that. Yes. His mindset was to create somebody suitable. We're seeing that in verse 18 of Genesis uh, 2 there, or 12 there. But also in verse 21, 19, 21, and 22, after he created the beast of the ground and stuff like that, then mm -hmm. he create, takes a rib and creates Eve, who is suitable, after he's already brought the animals to Adam and he named them. Yeah. Yeah, so the point that's brought up is uh, you're, you're saying you're noticing that he brings the animals, not one is found that is a suitable helper. Uh, and then uh, you'll notice the text doesn't say that he created an extra rib, right? So some of these, that's the easy inclination. We can start populating the text with what, what maybe we've heard from others. Uh, or imagined for ourselves. But, yeah, then he, it's, it's almost a mystical sort of scene. He creates this deep sleep to fall on him, right? And took that, yeah, took that rib. Um, 
You could even translate it, uh, took from his side. Uh, there's some great rabbinic commentary on this, by the way. The rabbis, uh, just like Christians over the centuries, have wondered, what's meant by that? Why a rib of all things? Uh, and I love one rabbi's commentary on it, um, suggesting, you know, if, if she had been taken from the head, she might have ruled over him from his feet. He might have gotten the impression he was supposed to rule and subjugate her. But because she comes from his side, they are to walk together. I like it. I don't know. It's, <laughs> the text doesn't say much more than that. So we're left to imagine ourselves. Yeah. Uh, other, other thoughts, questions? Yes, sir. The sun and the moon were created on day four. On the fourth day, yes, uh -huh. we consider a day, we measure it by the rotation of the earth on the sun, or the, the rotation of the earth. Uh, the first three days, are they still considered a 24-hour period? Uh, what, what would the length of time be um, for those first three days if the sun had not been created yet and we aren't able to measure that? Um, or is it just assumed that those are certain time periods, not actually 24 hours? Or? Sure, yeah. It's a great question. I mean, uh, you're uh, among a great multitude who have, have thought that, you know, along these lines. What do we do with those days? And with no sun present at first, how do you even mark those days? Um, what I would suggest to you, especially as little as the writer says, is to live in that poetry of it that it's not really even supposed to be speaking with the technicality we would bring to it ourselves. Uh, at least those of us who are scientifically minded, we, we want to figure that kind of stuff out. But for the ancient audience, it's just one of a number of ways that you could even talk about creation. Uh, and hence, that's why I brought out that chapter 2 is, is yet another way. It even seems to say in, in uh, verse 4 that on the day they were created, as if in the second creation account, maybe it's supposed to be understood as one day. Um, so that's what I would say is uh, that there's a poetry here that we might be most inclined to miss. Uh, and so uh, I wouldn't even suggest um, thinking about calculating the days. Um, with that in mind, of course, then that opens up other possibilities. Uh, if this is meant to be read only in a certain way that's not scientific, uh, I don't think that harms faith. I hope you don't either. Um, but it might even... Uh, produce some very fruitful conversation with those uh, doing astrophysics, for example, and what they're finding uh, uh, just from the measurements coming in from radio waves and all that. And uh, maybe there's a conversation to be had. Uh, modern sciences like astrophysics are doing their thing. They can't touch on God, can they? Ultimately, God can't be measured. Um, so they have a task to do, and some of them are Christians as well. Uh, and those of us people of faith are talking about things divine, but ultimately we will always have failing language, limited language. Hence, like the days, even days without a sun, or the hands of God, the eyes of God, God speaking. These are all ultimately going to fail us if we get too literal with them. But if we play with what the image suggests, we'll be in better territory. Yeah, I hope that helps. Yeah. If you look at the word day, mm -hmm. what I have read versus everything else that's in the scriptures, when it's identified with an adjective, it says it's day one or day two. Mm -hmm. It's always meaning 24 hours. Well, again, uh, you know, that's, that's a designation we use today. Um, and they, they do say evening and, and morning. And, and definitely, you know that from that first creation account, the writer is trying to get you to think of it like a whole week that we experience. And then you come to day seven if you're an ancient Israelite and you rest on that day. Um, so the importance ultimately is, is um, not the hour counting. Otherwise, I would, I would suggest that, to you that the writer would say that, would talk about hours. But it's more that for the ancient audience who didn't have watches like we do, they see the passing of evening and morning, and they mark out their times of the work week, and they look forward to that day of rest and meditating on the ways of God. And, and so this is a text that is supposed to transport them uh, as reflective readers into that experience and say, yes, my, in my work week, I feel a communion with God who works creation. And as I rest, I think about God who rests. And because he rests, I feel that all is right in the world. Now, when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, keep in mind that was a point in time when your average Israelite probably couldn't read. And so for them, the centrality of their religious experience was at the temple. 
Imagine having all the Bibles in the world burned up, destroyed. It would send you into a tailspin, wouldn't it? So too, for these ancient uh, Jerusalemites, it was a chaos that they couldn't have imagined when the temple, the house of Yahweh God, was destroyed. It was like the chaos, the chaos of uncreation. What, where is Yahweh if he's not in his temple? And I would feel you know, a lack of ease myself. Yeah. Yes, sir. Be another instance in which God, in his revelation, uses expressions for our convenience, such as sun up or sunrise, that's in scripture. Yeah. And yet, by scientific patterns, the sun's not doing it. Yeah. We're floating around it. And the eternal God, who is timeless, could, for the convenience of us, show stages of the formation, and he could put in the expression first day, second day, in order for us to comprehend the stages he's going through, but it'd be in a figure of, if you want to put a Rolex time on it, uh, like a sun up or a sun down, which is not even happening. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful way of thinking of it. That as, as we look at these texts touched by God, breathed by God, we want to appreciate that God in his timelessness, in this state that we, can't even, we can never begin to comprehend, um, would, would condescend to, to work with these, these human writers in, in what they were able to, to deal with. And their audience, what the audience could deal with at the time. And yeah. And then we, yeah, we still, we wrestle with these texts, just like one of my favorite parts of Genesis, Jacob wrestling with God, right? That itself is a strange metaphor, isn't it? But there you go. Well, I don't want to take up too much more time, but I'd love to talk with any of you afterwards. Please uh, take me up on that. Oh, or do we? Uh, oh, yeah. oh, an exception is me <laughs> from Marty, yeah. yeah. Well, there, there are those three repetitious phrases in Genesis. Uh, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's very good. And then there's... After its kind, yeah. Well, one thing, and, and by the way, if any of you are interested, I can point you to some good uh, follow-up books. If you really want to dig into to Genesis with uh, both books that are, are scholarly approach, but, but coming from people that are themselves believers, I have some good uh, uh, books to, to mention to you. Uh, but one in particular, John H. Walton, uh, a scholar in Old Testament like myself, um, I like his treatment of this, and it comes from his own reading of multiple ancient Near Eastern um, uh, texts. But he points out that in creation mythologies, creation stories of the ancient world, uh, especially around the Mediterranean region, ancient Near East, those people are not, their philosophy of creation is not interested in how the essence of things came to be, um, but rather uh, about how did things get their function, their role. Uh, and so when you hear this designation, each one according to its kind and all that, this is like the, you know, the, the creator God who is putting everything in its proper order. In other words, no more undifferentiated chaos. And so all of the uh, uh, tiny details are already set in motion and given their agency, God has delegated. Uh, and so that's, that would be the takeaway I would say for, for this is when it specifies each according to his time is, it's almost a shorthand way of saying we're not even going to get into every last little detail and germ here, but, but uh, it's enough to say God had it all in mind, even the ones we would forget, and set those rolling and blessed them and, and uh, gave them their, their designations. Uh, once again, the, I mentioned the Babylonian epic. Marduk did the same thing in that epic. Once he has defeated chaos and brought order, he names the constellations, sets them in order, assigns times and seasons and everything. Uh, and so the Israelites were not unique in saying that their God did that, but the major unique thing to take away is uh, that their God did not have to do that out of conflict, uh, but out of good intention. Yeah. What Moses was writing was a record of what had happened 
in the beginning. So even prior to the Enuma Elish, he's writing about a history that was, was even more ancient than that. Well, Enuma Elish uh, has its origin uh, earlier than uh, these texts, but but not earlier than the creation. <laughs> or, well, yeah, and, and so that's the interesting thing. You know, it's, I mean, uh, from where I would uh, come at this, it hardly matters who writes about it first, but the, the bigger issue is who is touching upon these, these universal truths that God, uh, that would re reflect God, reveal God. And when I read a text like this and I read through the Enuma Elish, um, not to say that there aren't certain things you could take away, at least as cultural lessons and so forth. Uh, I think there's a, a greater dignity to, to this text by far. Um, it even says on that day when he creates the sea creatures, uh, some of your translations will say he created the, the big sea creatures. should be translated he created the sea monsters. That's another poetry of the text. It, what it means to say is essentially, guess what? There's no Tiamat coming. Don't worry about it. God did not have any sort of enemy that could, could hold a candle to him. It's not going to happen. So it's almost like it takes Tiamat, what the ancients understood as this gigantic sea creature that was the, the ever-expanding waters, and puts it in a kiddie pool. <laughs> it tames the beast. It tames the creature. And shows that it's a creature. Yeah, yeah. It's fabulous stuff. Thank you again for having me. Thanks, Frank. Yeah.